0: Hello I double H's and welcome back to part two of the Krugersdorp cult killings. It's been another interesting week here in South Africa because the docuseries on this case that I mentioned has been a trending topic in the country since it dropped late last week. It seems like everyone is asking the same thing I have been asking myself all week, which is the thoughtful eloquent and succinct question of what in the actual freaking what the bleeding what is going down who and why yes you can count on me to ask the serious and well-formed journalistic questions but that's the effect this case has on you because you just bounce from craziness to craziness with each new fact and as i promised you last week it only gets worse from here Before we plunge headfirst into death and disorder, I have a few patrons to shout out. So, Vicky Edwards and Tianti, thank you so, so much. Tianti is also a high-tier patron, so she gets to pick a case for me to research and present. Thanks, Vicky and Tianti. You've made this podcaster's heart very happy this week. Also, my lovely sister, who I have now converted to a keen podcast listener, pointed out to me that people who are new to the medium might not be familiar with the Patreon format. So, out of sheer self-interest, I wanted to say that Patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, is a kind of fan-funding platform where listeners of a show or other content type come along and pledge a small amount to support the work of a creative or entrepreneur. This is, in addition to advertising and sponsorships, one of the main ways that podcasters attempt to monetize what we do. There is no pressure to support the show in this way, though. I hugely appreciate everyone who who does, but if you can't, that's cool. Please just keep listening, and if you want to, keep engaging with me on social media or reviewing the show as some awesome people have already done. I've been a journalist for some 15 years, but there is something so much more personal about audio storytelling, and I love the community that is growing around IHH right now, it's just so rewarding and exciting. Now, back to the real reason you're here, which I like to think is the same thought that's been keeping me up at night. What the actual fuck is going on with Cecilia Stain and the band of merry murderers she's nurturing up in the little blip on the map that is Kruger's Dorp. This is episode 9 of It Happened Here, The Devil in the Dorp, what Cecilia and the Krugersdorp cult did next. Let's remind you of a few of the key players. At the centre of this whole story is a woman called Cecilia Steyn. Cecilia has created this epic backstory for herself, in which she is a former Satanist, a ritualistic abuse survivor, a spiritual woman who wants to transform her life and walk with Christ. Give her half a minute of attention and she will tell you just how smart and special she is. So far, she's convinced Rhea Greeneveld and Rhea's prayer group turned sect, Overcomers Through Christ, that she's a genius who left school at 14 and has earned herself multiple doctorate degrees, and that for the Church of Satan, she's the one who got away. Rhea's friends, who are now C's accolades, include Candace Ridgyevic, who would go on to testify about the ongoings and write some books on this experience, but is not implicated in any of the crimes. In this episode, I also speak about Candace Ellison, whose partner was a victim here. I'm just highlighting that they are two separate Candices. And then there is high school teacher Marinda Stain, plus her children, son Larue and daughter Marcel. Marinta is obsessed with Cecilia and has moved herself into the same block of flats and basically lives for Cecilia. And lastly, there is a young couple, Michaela and Zach Valentine. There are others who at various times are present, but these are the key and recurring players, so to speak. Last week, I left you in 2012. It was the year of the London Olympics. The Hunger Games movie, the first one, had just come out. And Gangnam Style was the most watched video on YouTube, which is, in my opinion, the only real evidence of Satan's work that year. I also told you about the group's first four victims last week. Specifically, neighbours Natasha Berger and Joy Bunzaya, who were both viciously attacked in July 2012 as the Electus Perdeus group started a campaign of revenge and rage. Natasha was getting too close to Rhea for Cecilia's liking, and Rhea had finally started to distance herself from the self-proclaimed bride of Satan, born-again Christian Cecilia Stain. Joy was, to Cecilia and her crew, merely collateral damage. Then, in August 2012, Cecilia sent her crew after Pastor Reg Dixon. This man was a kind of mentor to Rhea, so this killing too was targeted to extract maximum pain from Rhea. In October 2012, 25-year-old Michaela made the error of trying to save herself, maybe even face the consequences of her actions. And for that, her own husband, Zach, betrayed her to the group, drugging her and leaving her defenceless when 14-year-old Marcel and her mom, Marinda, who had now appointed herself Cecilia's right-hand woman, came knocking. The first set of murders stands in my mind as one discreet group. These went unsolved at the time for various reasons, and the press dubbed them the satanic murders because of the occultish and ritualistic elements or themes. They do all occur in 2012, but they are different from the ones that follow in other key ways. I'm going to beg your forgiveness for talking about this in a very general sense now. My strong preference is never to dismiss a crime or a victim or to talk about loss of life as if that isn't key. It is. These were whole living human beings whose lives were brutally taken. But for a moment, I want to think about the function that these murders would have played in the minds of the perpetrators, in the group dynamic. First off, I want to talk about motives. For Cecilia's following, the motives were wrapped up in the position they believed they were playing in a literal fight between good and evil. Rhea was the good guy until she wasn't. Natasha prayed the danger prayer, so she must be killed, and so on. With Michaela, she was a threat to the group and their leader. I don't think it was as simple and clear as this in their minds, but largely speaking, these were not pragmatic crimes. They were ideological to a degree and rooted in group identity. For Cecilia's motives at this point, I'm tempted to use the term crime of passion. And I know I'm definitely using that wrong. I don't mean that they weren't premeditated. They absolutely were. And I don't mean passion as a mitigation of the actions either. I guess I've been using that term in my head to this point as shorthand for a category of Cecilia's crimes that are personal to her. They are, in her twisted mind, punishment for Rhea's decision to distance herself. This is the murderous equivalent of throwing a tantrum or giving someone the silent treatment. I'm not equating those things, of course, but there is a profoundly immature thought process behind these crimes. You hurt me, I hurt you. The immediate gains that Cecilia gets out of these crimes are not material, but personal and emotional Then, let's add another layer to this. This set of murders also bonds the members of Electus Perdeus in profound ways. It means that there is something very real on the line that they can all use as collateral against each other. Moreover, it contributes to their coherence as a group. It's us against the world. I can also see how this functions as a watershed moment for the group. Once you've gone to this point, you've crossed a moral and psychological line. Is it useful to speculate about the motives? I don't know. I do know, however, that I find the group psychology at play here so fascinating. If you want to dive further into this stuff, I highly recommend the Devil's Dorp companion podcast hosted by Nicole Engelbrecht. It's a great series generally, But episode two in particular talks about this stuff, the coercive control, the similarities in how a cult leader and and a domestic abuser slowly break someone and build them up in small ways and encourage dependence. how they use this to manipulate, isolate and destabilize someone. For now though, I will relinquish my position of armchair psychologist in chief and retreat to the safer waters of chronicling events, rather than psychologies. Almost immediately, however, we run straight into a storyteller's least favourite thing, a gaping hole in the timeline, because we simply don't know a lot about what Cecilia and small g, God's chosen homies, get up to for a few years. Between 2013 and 2015, the group is essentially off the radar. I suspect that there are many stories to be uncovered in this gap. And with the attention this case is getting right now, maybe we will soon learn what they were up to. But the next definitive point in our timeline is November 2015. Electus Podias has added a new member, John Barnard. John, you may recall, also ends up living in Cassana Flats. He was a printmaker and someone who describes himself, at the time, as a drug addict. Also, Electus Pudius is short on cash. Cecilia has extracted a monstrous amount of money from those closest to her, through direct tithes, and by telling them that they're donating to an orphanage of children who have been abandoned by adult Satanists. I'm not making that up. This is also a sign that this group has started to morph into a fledgling cult. How do we decide if a group is a cult or not? Later in this episode, towards the end, I'll talk about that and I'll also represent you with my DIY Is It A Cult Assessment Tool or Rubric. The money that she's amassed, however, is still not enough for her and together they start plotting ways to lay their hands on some more. By 2015, Cecilia doesn't need to con her group into killing in the name of religion or revenge. She has them so transfixed that she can openly plan murder for profit without compromising their loyalty. It's new member John who suggests that they look at Peter and Joan Mayer. John had worked for Peter, who was a relatively wealthy businessman, and John said... They kept a lot of money at their home. So on November 27th, Zach, Marinda and Marcel make their way to the couple's home. They hold them up at gunpoint, but the promise of oodles of cash in the house seems to have been unfounded. At this point, Zach apparently snaps and starts stabbing the couple, who bleed out and are left dead in their home to be discovered later by their grown-up children. Peter was 52, and Joan 48. There is a small moment of shun for a levity for you, though. Apparently, Leroux was supposed to help with this murder, but he accidentally shot himself before they left for it. It's not very nice of me, but I can't claim to not have found the irony in that just a little delicious. The group has two more lives on their hands, but not much more cash. So they start to up a more complex plan, one that they think at the time is a surer bet. Zuck takes out a life insurance policy and makes Cecilia the sole beneficiary. But although he's willing to kill for Cecilia, he isn't actually willing to die for her. Instead, they go searching for someone who they can pass off as Zuck. Jared Jackson is the man that they pick. Jared was 44 and unfortunately pretty down on his luck. He and his fiancée Candace Ellison had both developed quite considerable drug habits and were sleeping rough. They sold sweets and snacks on the roadside to bring in what little cash they could. Towards the end of a day with very few sales, the pair were sitting outside the hospital outside Costana Flats when two women came over and started chatting to them. In an article by Times Live, linked in the notes as always, Candace later recalls that they had felt so blessed that evening when Cecilia bought out their stock. On another day, Cecilia invited them into Kasana, where they met the rest of the crew. Cecilia claimed to be a psychologist from a facility where Jared had previously been treated for his addiction issues. And I have to interject here to say how furious this detail makes me that she would use his addiction and vulnerability against him to gain his trust on the 16th of december jared heads off to meet up with the electus pedias kasana crew cecilia had asked him to help out with something he's a bit vague on this point when he leaves candace that morning but it's cecilia they know her he tells Candace loves her as he heads out. John, Marinda, Leroux and Jared drive out in two cars towards the Free State, which is a neighbouring province to where they all live. Leroux, who is sitting in the car behind Jared, strangles him in the car to the point of unconsciousness. On a quiet spot on the road, they move his body to the driver's seat of Zuck's car, and then they set the car alight before driving away. When the cops trace the license plates back to Zuck, they find their way to Cecilia and Marinda in Kusana, who, through a series of lies and possibly a little bribery, tell the cops and the mortuary attendants that Zuck had been off-fishing in the Free State, and the whole thing is put down to an unfortunate car accident. They wait a whole day, before calling in the insurance claim. Meanwhile, Candace will never see Jared again, and later she will learn that he was likely still alive when they set the car on fire with him in it. Candace, I want to add at this point, really does seem to be in a much better way. She's Lost this incredibly important person to her, of course, and there's no minimizing that. But I do take some solace in the fact that she, in the recordings I've seen since then, appears to be doing a lot better. She's found support, she's found her feet again, despite what Cecilia and Zach, etc., took from her. Another happier note in this otherwise dark tale is the fact that the insurance investigators are not nearly as dim as the kasana crowd had counted on. They, in fact, see through the scam pretty easily. And in the Devil's Dorp documentary series, there is the most delicious bit of television I have seen for years. A recording of an interview with Cecilia, done as part of the insurance claim investigation, in which she sits in her lounge, lying through her teeth and looking smug as fuck about it, while the investigator plays her like a fiddle, prompting her to embellish her lies and reveal more and more how narcissistic and shallow of both soul and mind she is. Zuck is hiding out during this time. Remember, he is supposed to be dead, so he's living under an assumed name and his extended family believe him to be dead. That's seriously cold, as if the murders weren't enough. Early in 2016, the group starts looking for their next victim, and they find Glenn McGregor. Glenn was a tax accountant, so they simply contacted him and set up an appointment at his home for January 27th under the guise of doing business with him. But here, at gunpoint, they force him to transfer money to Miranda's bank account and shoot him. He dies from a gunshot wound to the stomach. In May they contact Anthony Schofield, another tax accountant. This time, they lure him to them again at gunpoint. They demand he hand over his bank cards and PID numbers, which they go on to use to extract almost 17,000 rand from his accounts. They strangle Anthony and place his body in the boot or trunk of his own car and abandon it. On May 26th, they set up an appointment with insurance broker Kevin McAlpine. Again, they suggest he come to the flats. Again, they force him to hand over his cards and pins and withdraw money from his accounts. He too is left strangled in his boot. Kevin was 29, married just a year, and his wife was seven months pregnant with their first child at the time. The M.O. in this series of killings is so clearly similar that the cops and the press soon link them. This is what is about to become known as the appointment murders, a spree that stirs up absolute terror in Krugersdorp and surrounds. The single thing tying the victims together is that it all starts with the most innocuous thing, a business appointment. In the Devil's Dorp documentary episode 1, A few people share their experiences of this time, talking about how everyone started cancelling their appointments, lest they too fall victim to what appears to be a serial killer. But it was also the spree that thankfully would lead to the end of this nightmare. But not before they struck one last time, luring 57-year-old real estate agent Hanli Latakhan out to meet them. Hanli would be strangled, and her body dumped in the felt. As I understand it, this change in disposal method was because she had parked out front of the hospital before walking off to meet her murderers, none the wiser. But with the car in that place, the usual disposal option wasn't really a choice. So they wrapped her up in a red blanket and drove her away in Miranda's car and they dumped her, as one of the policemen said, on the side of the road like trash. Her body would be found by kids just days later. I'm wondering if, after this long section of murder, you've noticed what I did while writing it. There's one name that has been conspicuously absent. That's right, it's Satan's homegirl herself, Cecilia, as with the earlier murders, Cecilia is central to these killings. The puppet master, I'm tempted to say. But at the same time, she's managed to largely keep her own hands clean. At least in the direct sense. The investigative net, however, was finally closing. The police accessed camera footage from the ATMs where the various bank cards were used, and they soon learned from informants that the grainy images of the people making the withdrawals look a lot like Marcel and LaRue's stain. The cops have something tangible to go on, a thread linking the killings beyond just the appearance of similarity, and then they have someone to squeeze. Marcel, as we know, is the youngest, but she is also a very smart kid, She's just matriculated from high school with a raft of fantastic marks. When she's backed into a corner with the footage and facial analysis by the cops, she spins this weave claiming that she and LaRue simply bought the cards off some local bad guys. It's not a good look for them, of course, but it's better than multiple murders. LaRue, although older, is less quick on the uptake. When he realises he's in deep shit, He starts to talk, but he's still operating from a group think kind of space. He essentially opts to take the blame, saying he'd acted alone. And obviously the cops know this is bollocks, and they already have quite a good idea who was involved. But they've not yet got what they need to really make their case. Until a little piece of information gold falls into their laps. Instead of being racked by fear and worry about her arrested kids, mother of the decade, Marinda, has been busy putting in place more protections for her beloved Cecilia. She's drawn up a will, a will the cops get hold of, and then they can reveal to LaRue that his mom has essentially disowned him, signed over all her worldly possessions to Cecilia herself. This is... The final betrayal for LaRue, the proverbial back breaking straw, and he finally starts to tell the truth. On June 26, Zuck is arrested for faking his own death and on suspicion of his involvement in various other crimes. In early July, Mirinda and Cecilia are taken into custody, initially for their involvement in Zuck's fraud case. In the Casana flats, the cops uncover a collection of firearms and Anthony Schofield's blood. They also go to Marinda's school, where she's been teaching this whole damn time. Her colleagues are incredulous, until the cops find a stash of ammunition that Mirinda had been hiding on school premises. Deep breaths, my dears, because we must still get through a little more detail, before we can all go soak our brains in bleach, or whatever it is that you do after a case like this. I'm not going to go into great detail about the various court cases. That may seem like an odd choice, because the testimony in these cases was explosive, and the whole country was riveted. But I have already used a lot of that detail to write the story. So instead of rehashing, I want to give you a few highlights and of course the sentencing. Larue is tried separately. He pleads guilty and agrees to testify against the others in order to get a reduction of sentence. He is found guilty on seven charges of murder and given 35 years for each of the murders, but these are to run concurrently. The reduction for his cooperation is 10 years suspended for an effective 25 years in jail. One of the most disturbing things I've learned about LaRue is that he actually had a two-year relationship with one of the journalists who covered this case in great detail for several publications. She is featured prominently in the series and companion podcast, and I have to say that after I watched the series, I had very harsh feelings about her. You know, as a journalist hearing the story about another journalist crossing those lines and I still believe strongly that she made grave errors in judgment here but in the companion podcast she speaks at length to Nicole and I have to say I was left with a softer set of impressions of her and some sympathy and we also get a much stronger sense of who LaRue might have been, that he was a follower, that he was perhaps quite immature for his age, and not inclined to violence naturally. I'm not saying that to excuse what he did, he owned up to what he did, and he is serving his sentence, but I think there's something to be said for that. Then, John is also tried separately. In December 2016, he pleads guilty to 13 charges, including 5 of murder, and robbery with aggravating circumstances. He is sentenced to 30 years, with 10 years suspended for turning state's witness. Marinda remains fiercely, pathologically loyal to Cecilia, to the degree that she not only admits to everything eventually, but she was in charge. Her various bits of testimony are chilling. She shows no remorse, no fear, She is sometimes quite clinical in her delivery and sometimes she honestly seems to be enjoying herself in reliving the details. She is handed 11 life sentences and I hope that she lives every single day of those sentences until she is as old as Methuselah. Cecilia, Zach, and Marcel are tried together. They all plead not guilty to the 32 charges against them Zuck's tactic seems to be deny and play dumb. In the various sources I've consumed for this, I've slowly been left with the opinion that Zuck was a monster in dormancy, waiting for someone like Cecilia to give his pathologies the chance to develop into real-world harm. What would have happened if he had never encountered this group? We, we can't know that. But once again, as with Jason Ritter from episode 5, I'm reminded that sociopaths are all around us, extracting what they want from the world, with or without bloodshed. And Cecilia? Well, she sits up there in court, looking like Miss Trunchbull's less pleasant sister, while still trying to project this persona of innocence. Her tactic is to appear perplexed at all times, and way more offensive to me than her questionable hairstyling, is the affectation she takes on in voice when she testifies. The way she says no is when it's most prominent in her voice. No, she did not know. She says with a little lilt like she's a French ingenue. No, she did not kill. No, she was never a Satanist. She has no idea why LaRue says all of this and on and on. It's annoying, but it's also telling, because the only other person with the tiniest echo of that vocal tic is Marcel, and it occurs to me that Marcel has spent most of her life living with Cecilia, serving Cecilia, competing with her for her own mother's affection from around, well, before her teens and through most of her formative years. Perhaps that's why she holds out so long. But in the end, Marcel would provide the case's biggest plot twist. She ultimately takes the stand and finally unburdens herself. Despite previously pleading not guilty, Marcel, who is then 21, testifies to her own direct involvement, contradicting the claims of the others that she was just a bystander. And she flips on Cecilia. Marcel's testimony is considered too little too late for the judge who hands down seven live sentences. This is the only sentencing that leaves me feeling... uncomfortable. I'm not saying that she should be absolved, but she literally grew up in this mess. She really barely had a chance. And Cecilia. Despite not being hands-on for the murders we all know she was guilty of orchestrating, she gets... 13 life sentences, 155 years imprisonment, and I have no problem with that. Jared's former fiance Candace, says something about her experience of rubbing up against this cult, and I do believe they fit that profile. She says, You can never look at someone who has a good job, a house and a car and children in primary school who speak about God and know for sure that they are good people. And my last, last, last point before I leave you for the week is that I spend ages, hours of my life, trying to come up with a satisfactory answer for the question, but are they a cult? Everyone seems to have a different take on this, and I respect that because it simply isn't clear-cut. So I took the definitely not incredibly dorky step, of drawing up a rubric based on a bunch of criteria I could find on what makes a cult. The definitions that you can drum up about this include things like a cult is a system of religious veneration or devotion directed towards a particular figure or object. Was it religious veneration in this case? No, but it was veneration that at least started against a religious backdrop. Was there a figure or object at the centre? Yes. I collected 30 of these, and I gave all the questions a possible rating of 1 or 0. So, like... The group is focused on a living leader who members seem to display excessive, zealous, unquestioning commitment to? 1. The group is preoccupied with bringing in new members? Not really. 0. 0. The group is preoccupied with making money, definitely one, and so on and so forth. And the outcome is a solid 60% affirmative, which leaves me feeling like that they could probably be comfortably considered a proto or quasi cult. And I like that result, honestly, mostly because I think it would piss Cecilia off. She wasn't the superstar genius that she claimed to be, and her cult wasn't either, She wasn't sophisticated or charming enough or frankly smart enough. Still, with an instinctive flair for manipulation and even basic mind control tactics, she turned this group of regular people into willing and even gleeful killers. And 11 people lost their lives as a result. Thanks for listening. Next week, I will be covering It Happens Here's First look at a local serial killer, the station strangler. It happened here is a ready freddy production written and presented by me, Kate Thompson Davy. Uh.